even for those Republicans for whom racism is not Donald Trump's appeal, racism is not a breaking point either. It's not a disqualifier to support him. They think that it's perhaps a minor foible that's not very important, whereas to me, that's a deal breaker. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. A lot of the time, I know my little introductory spiel can be a little bit pessimistic or a little bit depressing, pointing to important events in the world, like the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Well, today, finally, I have something upbeat and optimistic to say. The midterm elections in the United States were a huge success. Normally, populist governments do quite well at the polls for the first five or ten years that they are in office. That was not true for Donald Trump and his Republican Party in the 2018 midterms. They were soundly defeated in a referendum on Donald Trump. And there are seven really positive lessons that we can take from that, and I want to run through them very quickly right now. The first is simply to update our causal model of what is happening in the world. For the last two years, we've seen polls showing Donald Trump to be very unpopular, but we couldn't quite trust them because in 2016, they had seemingly misled us. Well, the midterms, millions of votes counted across the nation show us the polls were right all along. Donald Trump really is disliked by a majority of Americans. And that surely is good news in itself. It also shows that he's not really the face of America. He won in 2016 in good part because he ran against another candidate who was very unpopular. But most Americans do not like Donald Trump. They do not like what he stands for. And that is a very good piece of news about our country. The third point is perhaps the most controversial. It's that the Senate elections were a huge success. Yes, yes, Republicans added a vote or two to their column. That is true. But it's only true because the Senate map hugely favored them, with 26 out of 33 seats being ones that Democrats had to defend. In the popular vote, Democrats were up by 7 or 8 percentage points in the Senate. If they repeated the same performance they had on past Tuesday, they would clearly take the Senate in 2020. Fourth, this election showed that the Midwest is not lost to the Democratic Party. In 2016, it would have been reasonable to fear that states like Michigan, perhaps states like Pennsylvania, would forever be lost to the Democratic Party, just as in Europe, the vote of the white working class kept trending towards far-right populists more and more. But actually, the midterms brought huge successes to Democrats in states from Minnesota to Pennsylvania, from Kansas to Wisconsin. And that means the Democrats have two different ways of getting towards a majority in the Electoral College in 2020, either through the Sunbelt states like Arizona or through the Midwestern states like Pennsylvania or Michigan, or of course, through a combination of both. That is really reassuring. On a related note, fifth, swing voters are alive and well. One of the reasons for Democrats' huge success was the incredible mobilization of the base, 
But another reason was that a lot of people in suburbs, a lot of moderates have come across to the Democratic Party because they have such deep disdain for Donald Trump. Sixth, it doesn't take a genius to beat Donald Trump. Democrats did not have a very visible standard bearer in these midterm elections. That is normally the case for a party that doesn't have a current president. But a set of good, hard-working Democrats across the country, not all of them incredibly charismatic, not all of them once-in-a-lifetime political towns, were able to beat Republicans in House race after House race and in lots of Senate races as well. That should reassure us as we embark on a search for the candidate who can beat Donald Trump in 2020, but it doesn't take a genius, a once-in-a-lifetime political talent like Barack Obama to be able to carry the White House. And finally, most importantly, number seven, there is now a check on Donald Trump. After two years of unified government, which was very worrying considering Trump's open attacks on, yes, you know my phrase, the norms and rules of liberal democracy, Democrats can now fight back. They can make sure that the most egregious type of legislation doesn't pass Congress. They can investigate Trump for various forms of wrongdoing. They can force accountability by issuing, for example, a subpoena for his tax returns. The danger from the White House has not passed, but the chance of ensuring that our institutions survive another two years, that our institutions survive until at the ballot box we can remove Donald Trump from the White House in a direct referendum on his policies and his character has grown a lot. There haven't been many moments in the last two years to celebrate. There probably won't be many more in the next two years. So let's take a deep breath and raise a toast to the great success of the midterm elections. Rejoice for a little bit and then re-enter the fight emboldened. It's a real pleasure to have with me now Max Boot. Max is a historian, a best-selling author. He is, among other things, the Gene J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for the Washington Post. And he recently wrote a really interesting book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. A very interesting explanation of uh, what drew him to the conservative movement in the first place and why it is that he left it over the last years, becoming one of the most vocal critics of Donald Trump. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Max. Thanks for having me. So, you know, your book is sort of two things in my mind. It is a pretty erudite, angry, entertaining attack on all of the things that are wrong with the American right at the moment. But it's also the story of a kind of conversion, of a journey from the right to a somewhat different place. And I think to understand that, it actually helps to have an account of what it is that attracted you to that part of the political spectrum in the first place. And since I'm assuming that my listenership is left-leaning, if not homogeneously on the left, I actually find it really interesting to hear in your own terms why it is that you were a proud neocon, what it is about that set of ideas 
that you found persuasive and morally important a few decades ago? Well, I became a conservative and a Republican in no small part because of my own family history, because, you know, I was not born in the United States. I was born in the Soviet Union. I came to America in 1976 with my mother and grandmother at age six. And like a lot of refugees from communist regimes, I was naturally drawn to the most anti-communist political party in the United States, which was the Republican Party. And I really thrilled in the 1980s to Ronald Reagan talking about the evil empire and saying, tear down this wall that was standing up to communism and I was standing up for American values. And so gradually my conservatism expanded beyond anti-communist. I mean, I one of the seminal events in my life was when I was 13 years old and my father got me a subscription to National Review. And so that had a lot of impact on my ideology and my thinking. By the time I got to college at Berkeley in 1987, I was kind of a standard issue American conservative, and I would subsequently write a conservative column at the Daily Californian, like many other conservative columnists at liberal college campuses across the land. And my conservatism was about standing up for American values, for freedom and democracy in the world, limited government at home, kind of an optimistic belief in America that Ronald Reagan embodied. But that included things like supporting immigration, for example, which you know, has now become anathema on the right. It included supporting free trade, which also has become anathema with a large sector of the right. So this was what might be called in other countries really classical liberalism, but in the United States became known as conservatism, and that became my creed. So what do you think that conservatives at the time saw that liberals didn't? What of the critique of your fellow mostly lefty students at Berkeley that you might have made in those early day columns or that you continue to make later in your writing, do you think still holds? Which part of that do you think actually still is important for us to understand the world today? Well, I actually went back and looked at the columns I wrote in college. I did that earlier this year, and it was sort of an interesting experience because a lot of it, I think, still holds up. I mean, for example, I was very scathing about rent control, which I thought was reducing the supply of, of rental housing, and I believed in free markets. Then I still believe in free markets. I still think rent control is not a good idea, for example. I also made fun of in the late 80s and early 90s of the kind of 60s uh, hippie nostalgia that still pervaded Berkeley and kind of the reflects of anti-Americanism, which I saw for many people, and a tendency to embrace anti-American regimes and movements like the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, for example, which I still find to be a repugnant movement. So, you know, I haven't changed dramatically, but there's certainly elements of conservative ideology, which I espouse then, which I would no longer espouse. I mean, for example, I was amazed to find that after there was a hostage situation at a local bar where this madman held a, a number of people hostage and was killed by a police SWAT team, I subsequently wrote a column saying somehow arguing that this was an argument for the death penalty, but not for gun control. Now, why I argued for the death penalty, I have no idea because the gunman was already dead, but this was kind of conservative dogma at the time. And I repeated a lot of these stock arguments against gun control about how guns don't cause crime, criminals cause crime, and gun control won't make any difference and so forth. And subsequently, I realized that's crazy. We need more effective gun laws, just like in other Western democracies to deal with our epidemic of gun violence, which is 
know, a horrible thing in America. So there were certainly elements of conservative dogma that I espoused as a college student that I would disassociate myself from today. There's also a lot that I still agree with. What's been shocking to me is the extent to which the Republican Party, as led by Donald Trump, has turned its back on so much of what conservatives like me believed in in the late 80s, early 90s. So that's fascinating. So gun control is an interesting example of something you've changed your mind on. What else have you changed your mind on? Because what I'm actually interested in figuring out is exactly this question. Is it that people like you, but also people like, for example, Jennifer Rubin and so on, who really have changed sides politically in an interesting way in the last few years, is it that you've really changed your mind on a bunch of issues? Or is it that this landscape of American politics has changed so radically that the equivalent of a newspaper columnist, a conservative one, in your student days in the late 80s, early 90s, today actually is more naturally at home in the liberal coalition. So what are some of the other things which you came across and said, oh dear, um, I didn't remember saying that. That seems pretty wrong from today's perspective. Well, it wasn't that individually I said anything that I regard today as horribly wrong. I mean, there are some things that I certainly disagree with. I do think that it is the case that the conservative movement and the Republican Party have changed more than my actual views have changed. But it's also true that my views have changed and not just on gun control. One of the awakenings that I've had since the rise of Donald Trump is it's really alerted me to just how pervasive racism and xenophobia are in America, and in particular within the Republican Party, which I thought was a terrible slur on the good name of Republicans when liberals would say in the past, you know, Republicans are catering to racists. I thought that was false because I said, hey, I'm not a racist. My friends aren't racist. What are you talking about? And the fact that Donald Trump came along and he turned the dog whistle into a wolf whistle made it so loud that even I couldn't escape hearing it. And, you know, the fact that Trump won with such an openly racist and xenophobic appeal made me realize, wait a second, there's a much larger constituency in America for this stuff than I had realized. One of the things that I did in the late 80s, early 90s, along with a lot of other conservatives, was criticize political correctness. That's something that is also a target for Donald Trump and his ilk today. I mean, I still think that, you know, political correctness is wrong because I'm still a classical liberal and I believe in freedom of speech. So if I don't believe in in cutting people off from speaking, if you find their views objectionable, but I have changed my mind and realized that political correctness is a lesser threat to America than the racism and nativism and misogyny embodied by Donald Trump. And that's actually a key switch because, you know, if you listen to conservatives, they will make it sound like there is no problem with racism or sexism or nativism. The only real problem is with political correctness and progressive attempts to restrict speech. Again, I'm still a free speech absolutist. I'm still opposed to restrictions on speech, but I recognize that this pervasive racism and nativism in this country is a bigger threat, and it pains me to see the Republican Party catering to it so openly today. But again, I recognize that it has done so in the past as well, even even when I was a member. So again, I don't think my views have changed radically. I mean, I'm still somebody who was basically on the center right, but the, just the Republican Party has ceased to be a conservative party anymore. It's become a white nationalist party. And so therefore, I have very little in common with it anymore. So let's speak about this race part. You know, I think there's two things that have happened here. I mean, one, there's no doubt about the fact that the Republican Party under Donald Trump is quite a different party on immigration and on race relations than it was under Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush. At the same time, of course, there were elements of that all along. I mean, the Southern strategy played a certain kind of role since the early 1970s. George W. Bush won the primaries against John McCain 
in part by some of his allies insinuating that he had had an illegitimate child with a black woman. Did you sort of, at the time, think, well, okay, these are sort of some dirty tactics and that's unpleasant, but that doesn't really represent the movement? Or how did you sort of rationalize those things away? I was deep in denial. I was in my tribal bubble and refused to recognize reality. I mean, I remember in 1988, when the Bush campaign ran their Willie Horton ad against Michael Dukakis. And of course, liberals said it was racism. And I thought, oh, no, they were just highlighting the fact that Bush is tough on crime and, and Dukakis wasn't. So I, you know, willfully blinded myself to the racial aspect of what was going on. And, you know, I'm not proud of that because I was basically refused to see the reality about my political party, which I think is a common affliction in America. And now looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, it's so blindingly obvious, I truly don't understand how I could have denied it at the time. I think you have to have a nuanced view of this. I mean, the paradox is that, you know, Republican candidates regularly appeal to racist sentiments at election time, I think going all the way back to Barry Goldwater and then Richard Nixon and, and on and on and on. They all basically did. And yet once in office, they were often not racist. I mean, in fact, they were often fairly liberal on these issues as Richard Nixon and George H.W. Bush were. And I mean, George H.W. Bush himself is, you know, one of the most decent, honorable, upstanding Americans you could possibly imagine, probably not a racist bone in his body. And yet he very cynically allowed his campaign manager, Lee Atwater, to very ruthlessly exploit racial divisions in America in order to help him win election. And I tended to focus, I think at the time, on the positive aspects of somebody like George H.W. Bush and ignore some of the dark side of how he got into office. Do you think there's this weird kind of opportunity here? I mean, I think a lot about how we can uh, rebuild center-right party with a real commitment to liberal democracy and that leaves behind some of those racist appeals, not because I'm on the center-right, I'm not, I'm on the left, but because, you know, about half the country is right of center. And unless we have a political force that represents them, that is committed to those basic ideals, it's very hard to see how we might be able to get out of this mess. And so to try and be very optimistic in a political moment that I generally find to be quite dark, you might think that these racist appeals were always subtext. They were often quite straightforward subtext, as in the Willie Horton ad. They weren't very difficult to see through, but they were still at a certain level of gentility compared to what we're seeing from Donald Trump and his administration. Now, it may be that the subtext having become taxed, it just continues to dominate the movement. But it might also be that if Donald Trump should actually lose elections very badly in 2020 and the Republican Party actually managed to repudiate him, it might create a new kind of taboo in which people actually systematically stay clear of that. So what do you think that would take? What change would have to happen in conservative thought for people to say, no, 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 this really is not acceptable, even as this sort of electoral strategy that we've employed for going on to half a century? You're putting an optimistic interpretation on what can happen. I hope you're right. I mean, I hope, in fact, that the country does recoil from this. What's been shocking to me is that as the racism has gone from subtext to text, it's become a core part of Trump's appeal, and he's had a lot of appeal. You know, 80 to 90% of Republicans supporting him. I'm not suggesting that 80 to 90% of Republicans are supporting him because of his racism. I don't know what the percentage is who are motivated by his racism. I think it is a substantial number. It's 
probably not 80 to 90 percent. But what I do say is that even for those Republicans for whom racism is not Donald Trump's appeal, racism is not a breaking point either. It's not a disqualifier to support him. They think that it's perhaps a minor foible that's not very important, whereas to me, that's a deal breaker. You know, what will cause Republicans to think in the future that this is in fact a deal breaker, that they cannot traffic in this kind of prejudice and bigotry? I think the only thing that will do it is if they suffer devastating political defeats, and those defeats are ascribed to some extent to this extremist ideology. Even if Trump is defeated, defeat is just simply ascribed to Trump is an erratic person who sends unpleasant tweets. There's still an ideological battle over to what extent the Republican Party can essentially continue to promote Trumpism without Trump. I think that will be the battle going forward after Trump leaves office. That's a really interesting observation, actually. I mean, I've often thought of Trump's erratic nature and the unnecessary fights he picks as potentially one of his saving graces, which is to say that they're quite dangerous in the short run. They might get us uh, embroiled in a foreign war or something like that, but they also make him a lot less effective than uh, authoritarian populists like Viktor Orban in Hungary, who are much more strategic, much more disciplined, who don't invite all of these needless scandals. But of course, the flip side of that is that if Trump fails, it'll be tempting for people who like some of his nastier politics to say, well, he didn't fail because this kind of politics doesn't ultimately stick in the United States. It failed because of his failings as an individual. And so if we just manage to find somebody like, say, Tom Cotton, who can express some of the same basic politics in a slightly more disciplined way, then we're going to have a winning recipe. So his erraticness may make it harder for his style of politics to get repudiated if he loses. Yeah, I think those are eventualities we need to think about because one of the scariest things I can imagine in the future is a smarter version of Trump, less erratic, more focused, and one who has a more disciplined ideology. You know, essentially somebody like a Steve Bannon, perhaps in a more socially acceptable guise, is a, a more effective salesman, but with a much more disciplined ideological agenda. That's terrifying because, as you suggest, I mean, one of Trump's saving graces is that he is so scattershot and so frequently sabotages himself. So imagine if you were pursuing the same agenda in a much more ruthless and disciplined fashion, that would be terrifying. And I think that is something that we need to look out for in the future after he is gone, as there's a fight in the Republican Party over lessons learned from the Trump era. So we've talked a lot about implicitly domestic policy. We've talked particularly about the racism in the conservative movement that was always implicit, that's become impossible to overlook now. What about some other policy areas? What about particularly foreign policy? You started off by talking about the parts of your student columns you still agree with, harsh criticisms of the Sandinistas, which I certainly subscribe to as well. But it led to a kind of neoconservative project, which tried to spread democracy around the world quite aggressively, often by force. I wonder whether you could take a moment to describe the appeal of that at the time and the extent to which you're disillusioned with it now. Well, I think like a lot of people who were coming of age at the end of the Cold War, I tended to be somewhat hubristic in my approach 
to American power. I mean, I was graduated from college in 1991. This was the end of history moment when Frank Fukuyama was writing about how all of history was converging on liberal democracy. And it, that appeared to be a very plausible interpretation at the time, as you saw the Soviet Union collapsing, the Cold War ending an American victory. You saw once communist regimes in Europe being replaced by liberal democratic regimes. And the United States, of course, had played a pivotal role in, in this outcome by containing communism for all those decades. And that led us, the country as a whole, to expand its democracy promotion and general interventionist foreign policy, whether it was in the first Gulf War or Haiti, Somalia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. And although Somalia was a mess and a disaster, the others actually worked out pretty well. And in the case of the Gulf War, astonishingly well. I mean, there were all these expectations that this would be World War I redux, and instead it was more like the Six-Day War. So it was, a, it was a tremendous U.S. victory. And so then coming out of that, I think that gave a lot of people like me tremendous confidence in American power. And then after 9-11, that gave a focus for American power and American military might. And I, like a lot of other people on the right, and not just exclusively on the right, and there were also liberals who were certainly in favor of militant support for human rights in opposition to dictatorships. And that's what I think essentially led us into Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, I don't think it would have happened without 9-11, but nevertheless, there was a presumption that we could use our power not only to punish our enemies, but also to transform their societies. And of course, Iraq in particular was a chastening experience in that regard. It taught a new, a lot of us, lessons about the limits of American power and about the dangers of waging preventative wars. And for a long time, I was defensive about my support for the Iraq war and refused to recant of it. Now I freely say and I acknowledge in the book that it was all a huge mistake and, and I should not have backed the invasion of Iraq. And the lesson I take away from that is to be much more sparing in the use of American military power and to shy away from preventative wars, to not fight wars of choice, stick to the wars of necessity. But I still think it's incredibly important for the United States to stick up for our values, for freedom, democracy, and human rights. Even if we do it in non-militaristic ways, I think we still are a beacon to the rest of the world. And I think it's not only a moral duty, but also in our strategic interest to promote our values around the world. And that's something that Donald Trump simply does not understand or believe in. So I'm interested in both Afghanistan and Iraq, so perhaps let's take them one after the other. I mean, in the case of the Iraq war, what argument is it that you found persuasive at the time that you think, not just with the benefit of hindsight, but even then you should have recognized was not important enough to go into Iraq? What was the decisive set of factors that made you favor that intervention, that war, which you now realize was a mistake? Well, I favored the intervention because I believed, along with the rest of the world, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and I thought that the sanctions regime was crumbling, and so I thought we had to address this danger before Saddam acquired nuclear weapons. Now we know that was completely wrong. I don't think it was a plot on the part of the Bush administration to simply lie. I think this was a genuine mistake made by the U.S. intelligence community and by Western intelligence. But nevertheless, even if you believe that he had weapons of mass destruction, there were a lot of people at the time, including wise old hands like Brent Scowcroft, who were arguing that no containment was the proper course, that we should stick to sanctions 
we should not launch a war simply on the risk that someday somehow Saddam might acquire nuclear weapons. And in hindsight, I wish I had heeded those counsels of caution and truly small c conservatism. And once the decision was made that we needed to go to war, then I favored a very expansive set of war aims because, you know, I thought we could not simply go in there and topple Saddam Hussein, that we needed to leave a better regime in its place. And I succumbed to this hubristic notion that if we could implant a liberal democracy in Mesopotamia and that in turn would begin to address some of the dysfunctions of the Arab world that gave rise to 9-11, and that we could basically spread democracy outward from Iraq. And in hindsight, that was insanely foolish as an expectation. But it was fed, I would add, by people who were supposedly experts in the Middle East, Bernard Lewis, for example, and others who suggested that this would actually work. And in hindsight, it's obvious, you know, they didn't know what they were talking about. And I think like a lot of people, they and we drew the wrong lessons from the end of the Cold War because you saw, you know, liberal democracy take root in Eastern Europe. And so that led to an assumption on the part of many people, including me, that it would not be very hard to implant liberal democracy in places that had no history of it. And if only we'd waited a few years and we'd seen the backsliding in places like Poland and Hungary, I think that would have given us a much more realistic appraisal of how difficult it is to actually transform countries into enduring democracies. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I think two things there, right? I mean, one is that this is actually part of a story of a failure of experts and democratic elites in our society, which is more related to the rise of populism than we sometimes want to believe. And political scientists did not foresee 2016 in any kind of way. Economists did not foresee 2008 in any kind of way. But it is also interesting that Middle East experts were wrong about what the effect of that kind of intervention would be. I mean, I was sort of very much against the Iraq war at the time. I marched through the streets of London in that big famous march. But I think I did it for slightly knee-jerk reasons. And one of the things that strikes me about the debate in retrospect is the way in which the optimistic view about human nature was the one that was in favor of the intervention. It's that Iraqis are just suffering under this dictator, and if we remove him, they're going to want to become a self-governing country that treats every member of it well. And it hugely underestimated the power of tribalism in human nature, the difficulty of building a democracy. I think those are things that could have been foreseeable at the time, but it strikes me how much more hopeful the other side of the story is, as it were. And I'm sure that that is one of the reasons why some people were attracted to it. I'm interested, though, in understanding the other war and what we should have done about that, which is Afghanistan. It's slightly the forgotten war because Iraq was such a disaster and it took up so much attention. But that's a harder case. I mean, the Afghanistan war was by and large quite disastrous as well. And it's not as obvious that it was a war of choice. So I wonder how you would apply the learnings from Iraq to the case of Afghanistan. What should we have done in Afghanistan? What would you now do in Afghanistan if we had known what we've learned over the last 15 years? Well, I agree that we had no choice but to fight in Afghanistan because, in fact, we had been attacked. But I think the mistake in Afghanistan was, you know, we went in there, toppled the Taliban regime and didn't worry very much about what came afterwards. We didn't really work on consolidating the victory in the way that we did after World War II in places like Germany, Italy, and Japan, where we had troops there for a long time. And we really worked on implanting 
a pro-Western regime. I mean, we did implant a pro-Western regime in Kabul, but we gave it very little support. And, you know, essentially the Bush administration didn't want to do nation building. And so they told Hamid Karzai to take care of things on his own. And so he did. And the way he took care of things was by making compromises with these brutal and corrupt warlords who then victimized the population so much that it led to the resurgence of the Taliban by 2005. And of course, by that point, we were completely distracted because the Bush administration had moved all of our governmental and and military resources into Iraq. Uh, And so we had a bare bones commitment in Afghanistan while we focused on Iraq. So if we hadn't made the mistake of going into Iraq, perhaps we could have made a greater commitment in Afghanistan to consolidate that victory at a time when the Taliban were very unpopular and Americans were actually very popular in Afghanistan in 2002 because we were the people who liberated the people of Afghanistan from a regime that by then had lost much of its popular support. So, you know, I think we should have done more nation building of the kind that we did in places like Bosnia and Kosovo, working with our partners in the international community instead of just moving all of our resources into Iraq and dealing with this unnecessary conflict. So one of the things that I find intriguing about this book is the way in which it describes a process of changing your mind about politics. And I want to probe a little bit more deeply into that. I mean, I think we sometimes underestimate how effective argument can be. I mean, as a writer, I sometimes feel a little depressed about, you know, am I just preaching to be converted? Yeah, I know Uh, the feeling. (laughs) Right. If by this stage people still haven't seen what's wrong with Donald Trump, I certainly don't think that an extra episode of A Good Fight would help. And frankly, the people who still think that Donald Trump is great don't listen to this podcast anyway. They might happen to come across one of my pieces of writing, but since I'm mostly published in Slate and, you know, The Atlantic and The New York Times and so on, it's not that likely that they will come across those pieces of writing either because our public sphere is at this point uh, pretty split. And the same thing obviously goes with, you know, the joke that I got to go and post the 70th comment on this thread on Facebook because somebody's wrong on the internet. And the joke is that <laughs> you're never going to persuade them anyway. But I wonder whether that underestimates, trying to be optimistic again, the impact that political arguments have. Because I think often it's very rare that we read something that's on a topic on which we have strong views. It's different if you read something on a topic you don't really have strong views on. Then you might be influenced by one article and really shapes how you think about it. But even on an article where you have strong views, it's very, very rare that you immediately change your mind. But I wonder whether sometimes those arguments percolate and they stick in your mind and over time they soften your attachment to your point of view. And it's never a moment of changing your mind. But there can be evolution. And when you look at people's political views, a lot of people are relatively liberal in the uh, early 20s, for example, and become quite conservative by the 50s and 60s. And, and it rarely is a hurrayka moment. It is often that process of transition. Now, you've sort of gone a little bit in the other direction, but how would you describe that process? Were there particular moments for you? Is it a matter of percolation? Is it really just sort of looking at Donald Trump and saying, hang on a second, where have we gone to? Is this a moment of shock? How did you experience that moment of losing your political tribe and rethinking a bunch of important things? Well, in the case of Donald Trump, it was just a sudden series of shocks. I mean, I was viscerally and instantly opposed to him from the moment that he came down the escalator at Trump Tower attacking Mexicans as rapists and murderers. I thought this is, you know, just so outside the boundaries of civilized discourse. And then a few weeks later, he said he had no respect for John McCain because he had been captured. I mean, again, just one horrifying moment after another. 
And I just assumed, you know, that he would never win a single primary. And when he won most of the primaries and won the nomination, won the presidency, that was such a shock to me. That's the last thing I ever expected was like getting hit over the head by a two by four. And it made me realize what the heck is going on here and how is it possible that so many of my compatriots on the right have supported somebody who is so antithetical to my values. And that's what really, in my case, sparked this massive rethinking. Jonathan Chait had a nice analogy and a very good review of my book that he did in New York Magazine, where he said, you know, if you suddenly discover that your best friend is a terrorist who has been killing innocent people for years, you don't just say, well, he's a pretty good guy. I just disagree with his terrorism. But other than that, you know, nothing has really changed. No, I mean, you actually re-examine and say, wait a second, what the heck is going on here? How is it possible that my buddy, whom I've known for years, was actually a terrorist? You know, what did I miss about him? What was going on beneath the surface? And that's kind of how I feel about the Republican Party. I mean, what was it that enabled them to support somebody as egregious and dangerous to our democracy as Donald Trump? And that's what really caused me to start to rethink a lot of the dogma that I believed in, including this kind of founding myth of the conservative movement about how wonderful people like Barry Goldwater and William F. Buckley and others were. And it made me realize what was really going on in the 50s and 60s, that there were deep roots in extremism, in populism that go back to the very origins of the modern conservative movement. This was not a new phenomenon. And it just gained steam in the last few years with Newt Gingrich, the Tea Party, Sarah Palin, Fox News, all these very dangerous developments. And it made me realize, oh my goodness, I've been blind to this. I've been complicit in it. And that was kind of the shock that made me you know, re-examine what was going on. And probably in a similar kind of way as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact caused a lot of communist sympathizers to re-examine their sympathies for the Soviet Union and say, wait a second, what is this regime that is making common cause with the Nazis? How could I possibly support them? I kind of had that similar, oh my goodness moment when Donald Trump won power with Republican support. So one of the interesting things about that is that when you are part of one political tribe, you don't see the appeal of the other political tribe very well. So, you know, you describe the process of re-evaluating your friend who turns out to be a terrorist. Presumably, you might also reevaluate all of the people who were telling you, hey, this guy is bad over the years. What is it in the liberal point of view or in the left-wing point of view that you think is actually appealing and important and has some important set of values or an important aspiration to contribute to American life that you were sort of blind to while you were still comfortably a part of a conservative tribe? You know, I'm pretty comfortable with the center-left. I don't think there's a vast difference between the center-left and center-right, maybe at the margins in terms of how much money you spend, how much you tax. I mean, I'm still somebody who believes in fiscal conservatism and limited government, which is something that the Republican Party doesn't believe in anymore. And I'm uncomfortable with the very ambitious spending plans of the real progressives like the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens. But I think the kind of center-left, that's not where they're at. I mean, I'm very comfortable with like a Clintonian foreign policy and domestic policy of, you know, I mean, remember Bill Clinton was the last president who presided over a balanced budget. So that's a movement that I'm comfortable with and I'm comfortable with a lot of the critiques that liberals make of the Republican Party. And I think I'm more comfortable now than I used to be in the early days of the Iraq war with critiques of unilateralism, which was something that I defended in foreign affairs at the time of the, of the Iraq war. And, you know, now I'm horrified by how exceedingly unilateral Donald Trump is, far more so than George 
W. Bush ever was. I certainly can see that a lot of the liberal critiques were right on. And as I said before, especially in the case of calling out the Republican Party for dog whistling to, to racists and nativists, I think that's absolutely correct. There's a lot that I can agree with Democrats on about gun control, about immigration. My biggest objections to Democrats these days have to do with the fact that a lot of them are very fiscally responsible, but then so are Republicans. There's not a huge Republican advantage there. And I'm also concerned that a lot of Democrats are also not free traders, that they also embrace protectionism just as the Republican Party has. And there's also an isolation of strain on the far left of the Democratic Party, just as there is on the far right of the Republican Party. And that's something that I'm very concerned about because I still believe in the American-led global world order. I think that's incredibly important uh, for the future of our country and, and for the future of humanity. So we've talked a little bit about foreign policy, about domestic policy, about some of the failings of a right that you weren't fully aware of earlier and how it has changed your mind about those things. What do you see as a vision for the United States now? I mean, if we're assuming that Donald Trump didn't come out of nowhere, but it's not just his personal charisma that got him there, but there's a set of deeper, more long-running causes that have transformed the politics of the United States and of so many other countries in the direction of authoritarian populism. What do you think those causes might be and what is it that we are able to do about them? How would you actually want to see public policy changed after Donald Trump leaves office that might help to combat those underlying factors? Well, whoever comes after Donald Trump is going to have a massive repair job. And, you know, I don't know how quickly that's going to be possible or if it's going to be possible at all, frankly, because I think you have to do a lot of repair work both at home and abroad. At home, I think you have to delegitimize this racist discourse, this uh, xenophobia. You have to bring people together and you have to combat the fake news spread by organizations like Fox News, which is very hard to do because you know, of course, they have a right to free speech as well. So how do you convince people to accept commonly accepted facts? Very, very hard to do. And then I think abroad, I think you have to try to restore credibility and respect for America. Again, very, very difficult to do. I don't know if it's possible to do because, you know, I think American power was already in relative decline even before Donald Trump. And he is accelerating that. And even if we have somebody come after Trump, who is much saner and much more in the liberal internationalist tradition, other countries around the world are still going to know that there is this uh, protectionist and isolationist sentiment in the United States that Trump catered to, and, and the sentiment is not going to disappear even when Trump is gone. There's always going to be the possibility of another Trump returning. And so I think that will cause other countries to reassess how much they depend on America and will cause them to pull back from the American-led world order. So I think it'll be a massive job for the next president, assuming this is not somebody in Donald Trump's mold. It'll be a, a massive job for the next president to reassert kind of traditional American values at home and abroad. And finally, what do you think the prospects of a sane writer? And if those prospects aren't strong, what does that mean for the United States? Because I assume you agree that there are a lot of Americans who are right of center, how do we make sure that they get integrated into the political process without doing real damage to liberal democracy? That's a great issue. And I, I don't know how you do that because, you know, even if the Republican Party stops espousing racism and, and nativism and misogyny as openly as, as Donald Trump does, you know, presumably there's going to be a set of voters who think along those lines. I think it may be simply a process of generational change. I mean, if there is any hope for America, I think it's with younger people 
who, according to the polling, are much more anti-Trump than the older generation are much more comfortable with multiculturalism. I mean, I think that's really the root of the problem, the fact that America is on a trajectory by the 2040s to become a majority-minority country, and there's a lot of uh, angry white people out there who don't like it. But the demographic reality is there's simply going to be fewer white people, and they're going to be fewer older white people for sure. I mean, there's going to be younger people who I think are much more comfortable with this new America that is emerging. And so I don't think there is any quick fix to root out Trumpism. I think you just have to try to educate people and hope that this generational change will be a positive one. Max Boot, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Be really old-fashioned and take out a banner ad for The Good Fight to display on all of your favorite websites. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.